it's not what we think it is. Now, lots of times it's, it's one of those passages that people really uh, love. It's maybe one of their favorite passages. It's one of those memorable passages. It's one of those passages that we read at, at weddings and, and it's something maybe we, uh, maybe we, we even included parts of it in a love note at one point. I don't know who would have done that, but I'm pretty sure somebody did that. You know, it, it, it's one of those passages. It, it's 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's not what we think it is. It's not, it's not a sentimental kind of pray and praise of love. It, it's a correction. It's a rebuke. It's a confrontation. It's speaking to a people who have been struggling with many elements of love. And Paul is saying to them, this is what love is. It's not you. And I think to begin with, to start with, we have to start to read it from that perspective. And not love it, love it as the word of God, as an expression. This is what love is, but also see where we're failing in it. And what I hope will happen by the time we're done is that you will understand what love is. And that you will begin to grow in Christian love. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. What I want you to see first is the necessity of love. The necessity of love. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read verses 1 through 3. The necessity of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. It's what Paul says, it's what Paul writes, it's what God says to us. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can see there in verse one, he talks about if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, uh, the one of the things that, that chapter 13 follows on from chapter 12, comes before chapter 14, which is very much about tongues. It's about spiritual gifts. And one of the most highly valued, highly prized gifts in Corinth was the, the gift of tongues. And why not? The gift of being able to miraculously speak in other languages, that's what they did at Pentecost. Why wouldn't you highly prize that gift? I mean, that would be something that, that it seems like everybody would want. But Paul says, hey, if you, if, if you have that, and he says there, he says there, if I have the tongues of men and of angels. Now, uh, just as a little side note here, I don't think that there is anything uh, in chapter 13 that really is a determining factor in, in resolving disputes over tongue speaking or sign gifts. I don't think there's anything in there that, is, that determines the argument. Paul is speaking in terms of, of hypotheticals or of, of in hyperbole. That is, if I speak in every language that any man knows, if I speak in every language on earth and in heaven above, if I were to speak in every language that has ever existed, 
in the time-space continuum, but if I didn't have love, I'd be a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. The, the pictures there is a, what they used to do is, is for theater performances or stage performances, they would have this, this big gong. Uh, and it wasn't to get people off the stage. It was to, it was to amplify the sound. So it's like speaking through a megaphone or through a sound system. And then you know what a symbol is. And symbols have their appropriate place inside an orchestra or a band. But if somebody came up to you after the service and said, Hey, I'd really like to play for you my symbol solo. You know, that would not, that would, you might be nonplussed by that. That might not be a happy idea for you. It's, it's if I, I, I can speak in all these languages. If I don't have love, it's noise. And we even see that in chapter 14, it seems like people were, were trying to step into the spotlight. They were trying to express their gifts. They were talking over one another. They were, they were pushing other people out of the way so that I could talk about, I, I want to I share my tongue. I want to share my language. I want to share my gift with everybody. I want to make sure everybody sees. Paul's saying, you're not being loving. That's not love. Yes, this is a valuable gift. This is a, a, a gift that is from the Spirit of God that he gives. And he's already taught them not to devalue gifts, but at the end of chapter 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the better way. Whatever your gift is, there's a better way to use it, and that better way is love. Now then, just so you don't think that Paul is picking on tongue speaking or speaking speaking in these other languages you know we we know from and we'll see in chapter 14 that that relatively speaking uh paul values prophecy more than tongue speaking because of its clarity because of its intelligibility relatively speaking you can see why we would prize Prophecy. Prophecy is the, the revealing here. You can kind of see uh, part, of the, part of the definition of prophecy here as the, the revealing of all mysteries and all knowledge. That is, this is, what, this is what we are coming to understand as in, and we can see why this is so important because Jesus Christ died on the cross and prophecy is very much a revealing of what that's all about. What is the meaning of it all? Things that had previously been hidden or mysterious, now they are made known. Prophecy is very valuable. Paul prized it very, very highly. But if it is not expressed in love, you know, later on in chapter 14, hey, let only three prophets speak because people can only listen for so long. And if somebody else needs to speak, you be quiet. Express love. He says, if I, if I have that and I, I do not have love, I'm nothing. It says the same thing about faith. All Christians have faith, but we saw in chapter 12 that faith in some, in some cases is, is given to a, a special degree in certain believers. It, it enables them to, to, to trust God for things that other people can't. And in that way, they use that gift to build up the church. They act as exemplars and models that, that encourage the faith of everybody. They help everybody believe God for more. But if they have the gift... They have that gift of faith that enables them to remove mountains, to do the impossible. But if they don't have love, they're nothing. And you have all these gifts, these highly prized gifts. What, what gifts should be, could be greater than these gifts? Prophecy, the revelation of, of, of previously unknown things or, or tongue speaking. That, that gift that, that 
designated that, hey, the gospel is going out to all nations, or even the gift of faith, the gift is, uh, that a faith is able to overcome every impossibility, that trust God for everything. What, what great gifts those are. But now, how, no matter how great those gifts are, if they are without love, they are nothing. They are noisy, worthless gifts. But, hey, that, that's gifts. But what could be more loving than self-denial? Self-denial is something that is required of the one who would pick up their cross and follow Jesus. If you, if you value anything, family, possessions, more than Jesus, you cannot be Jesus' disciple. But look at what he says. He says, if I give away everything, if I give away every possession, if I deliver my body to be burned and do not have love, I gain nothing. Radical generosity and even being willing to obey Jesus to the death, those are, those are things we ought to believe for ourselves, that we would value nothing above Jesus. But you also realize that Christianity is not unique because of its self-denial or because of its martyrdom. There are other religions where people give everything away and treat their bodies very harshly in order to gain self-glory or win a reward in their own version of afterlife. There are people in other religions who lay down their lives for what they believe because they think that in doing so, they will earn a place in their own version of paradise. The mark of a Christian is not ultimately self-denial. The mark of a Christian is love. That's real spirituality. That's what the Spirit really produces in believers. And so, tongues, prophecy, faith, self-denial, gifts, good things, but if you do not have love with those things, all you are pursuing is self-glory and self-righteousness. And that is, that is not a good thing. That is a condemnable thing. You have to lay aside self-righteousness and self-glory and pursue love that is looking out for other people. It's not trying to step into the limelight. It's not trying to, to, to step into the spotlight. It's not trying to push and shove and get to the front. It's not, it's not, it's not saying, look, praise me, look at me. Instead, it, these gifts, these graces, they should be for the good of other people. Even, even as God has given his son for us. It is a giving, not a glorying in ourselves. So we see the necessity of love. Without, without love being a part of all these things, they are worthless. Next, we'll see the nature of love. So we see the, that we have to have love. Now we're going to see what love is, the nature of love. 
Look at verses four through seven. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First description there is love is patience. Patience is a is giving people the grace of time. Giving people time. Has God not demonstrated this to us? What is he called? He is called slow to anger. He is called patient, giving people time to repent. That is the love of our God toward us, each and every one of us who has believed on our Savior, Jesus Christ. It was because of the patience of God. And patience is a, is a virtue rooted in love that is of absolute, uh, absolutely needed in church. We have to be patient with unbelievers to give them time to understand. We have to be patient with new believers who are just trying to find their way. We have to be patient with weak brothers and sisters who have, have clouded consciences, have weaker consciences. We have to be patient with those brothers and sisters who continually sin, oftentimes in the same way. We have to give them the grace of time. We have to wait. The Corinthians had not waited for one another. In chapter 6, they took one another to court. Like, I'm going to sue you, my brother. Hey, we're gathering for the Lord's table on, on the Lord's day, but hey, on Monday, all bets are off. Uh, you haven't given me what I asked for, so let, let's go and settle this. It's not patience. It's not patience. And right off the bat here, we see that, that when Paul is describing love, love is more than a feeling. Certainly, love has within it a, com- a compassion and affection as a part of it. But love is something that you do. The great DC Talk said, love is a verb. You know, so if you know what that is. So. It's something that you do. It's something that you practice. And so, so it's something we ought to do there. Also, love is kind kind. I bet the Corinthians thought that they were kind. I bet they thought that they were so kind when they let the man who was notoriously sexually immoral, they, th- they gloried in the fact that, hey, here's this guy who is committing sexual immorality with his father's wife, but aren't we so gracious? Aren't we so kind in, in just letting this happen? Isn't that such a good thing? No! You're letting that man, you're letting that brother go to hell. What you ought to do is when you come together, put that man out of the church so that his soul can be saved on the last day. That's kindness. Kindness is not simply being nice. A lot of people are nice because they want other people to like them. That's not kindness. That's flattery. And flattery leads people to the grave. Sometimes kindness is working in ways that can sometimes be painful to people, but it is working for the best for other people. 
It's not considering about how much people like you. It's not considering about how, how can I be nice and, and show nice Southern hospitality and charm and, and, and kind of be passive aggressive and talk behind their back and that kind of thing. It is going up to their face and saying, listen, brother, because I love you, I got to say this, or I got to help you this way, or this is what I think is best. Sometimes it does, it should have that kind of gentleness and that kind of warmth. But it's not just simply being nice. It is seeking the best for other people. Then Paul says what love is not. He says uh, that it is not, it does not envy or boast. But this is exactly what the Corinthians have been doing. They have been boasting, chapters 1 through 4, they have been boasting in, uh, in their preachers, their favorite preachers. Hey, this, I'm with this group. I'm with this faction. I'm in this club. They've been boasting in their own eloquence and their own ability to speak and their own ability to, uh, to make, to make much of themselves. They had boasted those things. They had, they had envied one another. They wanted to be, every single one of them wanted to be the top dog in the congregation. They wanted to be, they wanted to be at the top. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be recognized for their abilities. And where they were not boasting, they were envious. Says that the very word there next, that where it says it is not arrogant, they are not arrogant. Uh, love is not arrogant. It's the same word that's translated puffed up in chapter eight, where Paul was talking about a so-called knowledge, where some thought of themselves as this intellectual and and uh, mysterious elite because they had knowledge that other people didn't have. That's love that produces, uh, that, sorry, that is knowledge that produces arrogance. That's not love. That's not love. If we allow any of our, any of our knowledge, good knowledge, good thing, we, we need to know. But if it does not produce love, that's, that's not true knowledge. That's not God's knowledge, what he grants to us. Next, he says that it's not rude. It's not rude. Isn't that crazy? I, I don't know. Anybody else feel like that one's out of place? Love is not rude. But, you know, certainly love is more than being polite and courteous, but it's not less than being polite and courteous. And the Corinthians were never polite or courteous. Is it polite or courteous to make the poor people uh go eat at some other time or some other place while the while the wealthier upper class eat eat at another place. Well that's what was happening at the Lord's table in chapter eleven. Is that is that courteous or polite? You know, we have to recognize that 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 and sometimes I think this is something that is neglected. Sometimes I hear people say, well, for instance, profanity is an example. Well, isn't profanity just a social convention? I mean, the seven words that you can't say on television, isn't that just, you know, are those, are those, is it really not okay? It's really not okay. Social convention or not. It is, it is a social and culturally conditioned way of showing love to other people. And so say, so is saying thank you. And so is using, uh, showing respect for our elders. So is showing up on time. So is, so is dressing appropriately. Those are all ways of demonstrating respect for people, listening attentively. And how much of that has an effect on our witness to other people, both as individuals and as a church? 
People are not going to listen to us if we're rude. And people will not come back to our church if we're rude. So much of the the judgments that people make about us and about whether or not they want to hear what we have to say has to do with how we present it, whether or not we present it in a courteous way. And so we need to do that. Uh, It says, next he says, he does not insist on its own way. Now, when it comes to principles, we can't sacrifice those. But when it comes to preferences, then it's time to defer to other people. Hey, I I think it's time, I'd like for you to use your gift at this moment. I'd like to give you a chance to speak. I'd like to give you a chance to make a decision. Hey, won't you take this part over here and you do it, you do it the way that you want to do it. You like this song? I, I, I can't stand that song, but, but you like that song. And it doesn't, doesn't hurt in principle. I, I, want you to, I, want you to, I want you to have a chance. I want to defer to what you like. When it comes to principles, we can't move. But when it comes to preferences, then there has to be differences. And that's the only way I can make it rhyme. But that's the idea. We don't insist our own way. Don't insist on pushing to the front of the line or pushing out of the crowd. Next, he says, it is not, uh, it is not irritable. How would family life be transformed if everybody in your home stopped being irritable? Thank Thanks be to our Father in heaven that he is not irritable toward us the way that we often are toward our children. If husbands and wives were no longer irritable toward one another, if fathers and mothers were no longer irritable toward their children, if brothers and sisters were no longer irritable toward one another, how would family life be transformed? How would church life be transformed? How would the workplace be transformed? We should not be easily provoked to anger. God's not short-tempered. He's not short-tempered. He's slow to anger. So should we be. And he says, or resentful. A lot of you will know the the, uh, older translation of the NIV. That is, that it does not count, uh, make a record of wrongs. That is, this is the idea of not keeping score. Not treasuring up the wrongs or the wounds that people have, have given us. Not dwelling on those things. Instead, love has always this disposition disposition to forgive and to reconcile, always to make things right, always to to restore, always to pursue, always to go after, always to, to make things right, if at all possible. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Notice there the connection between truth and righteousness. Falsehood and wrongdoing go together. Truth and righteousness go together. And, and think about, think again about that. Think again about the one who was sexually immoral in chapter 5. The one who was committing sexual immorality with his father's wife. Think about that. Consider that. Well, the, the Corinthians were rejoicing in that. They were happy about that. They were excited about that. Love does not rejoice at that. And you know, there, there are many in our culture, even, even so-called Christians, who want us to be more accepting of something that the Bible clearly defines as sexually immoral. Clearly defines as sexual immorality. 
The word is, in the scriptures, in the original languages, porneia. And it has a very definite definition. And there are people who want us to approve of it and to rejoice in it. Love never does that. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not condemning. But love rejoices in the truth, not in wrongdoing. And then finally, there is the verse 7. And, and one translation helpfully puts it this way. It says, love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. No, love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. Love, love never, gets, never, never gets tired of bearing other people's burdens. Never says, hey, I, I'm, I really, I, sometimes I've, I've heard this, you know, uh, men who have, have served in the church for a while, they will talk as, you know, they get into their, their 60s or their 70s and they just say, hey, I, I kind of did my thing. I served as a deacon for a while. I think I'm going to kind of take a break now. I'm, I'm retiring from church life. Love never tires of supporting other people. Love never loses faith, no matter how big the obstacles seem. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Faith believes that. Believes that. Love always hopes. Never gives up hopes. Never exhausts hope. There's always this confidence that God is going to come through. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I'm not afraid. I'm surrounded by enemies. But my hope is in God. He's going to protect us. He's our strength and our shield. Love never gives up. It endures all things. When you look at this, and you look at yourself, how many of us, how many of you feel the way that I feel? I do not come close to that ideal. But there is one who came and lived this ideal toward God and toward men, Jesus Christ. He lived a life of perfect love. He was patient. He did not crush the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. The, the person who was struggling, Jesus, Jesus was there. God, Jesus was, he rebuked those who were in error. Remember the, 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 the rich man? Jesus loved him, and he said. Jesus was not rude. Jesus was not resentful. Jesus was not resentful. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even now, Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sins, he is ready and eager to forgive your sins. To forgive our sins. He's not resentful. Stop thinking that Jesus Christ is storing up in his mind all the ways that you have wounded him this week. All the ways that you have done wrong to him this week. Stop thinking that way. The record of your wrongs has been expunged. He no longer has thoughts toward you of your wrongdoing, of your sins. He has taken those away. 
Praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Because of His extraordinary love toward us, we no longer feel condemned because of our lack of love. Now, does that mean that we are no longer supposed to shoot for this idea? Well, that's surely not Paul's point here. Paul's point here is, this is who Jesus is. This is not what you are. But this is why you were saved. You were saved to become like this. And so what happens in the human heart is that when a person is born again, faith, hope, and love are born in him. They come alive in him. And no, we are not perfected and will not be perfected in this life, but we are continually being changed, continually being transformed from from one level of glory to another. We We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are being made like him. He was like this, and so we are being made like this. And so as we look to him, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, we put everything else behind. We put away, we put away our irritability, we put away our resentfulness, we put away all of our sins. Big and small, and we put those things away, and we follow Jesus Christ, who first loved us. He he gave himself as a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. So we pick up our crosses and we follow him. He was the one who is love, who perfected love, who authored love, and he shows us how to love. He has given us to live within us his very own spirit. I will go to the Father, and I will send one like me to live inside you so that you will love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Spirit does that. Rely upon the Spirit of God. Rely upon Jesus Christ that He will make you increasingly like this kind of person. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Praise be to our Father in heaven who has given us every good gift, including implanting within us the Spirit of love. We see the nature of love. Next, we see the permanence of love. Because love never ends. Look at verses 8 through 12. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He talks there about prophecies. How valuable is the prophetic word of God? How valuable is that? I mean, I, I cannot think of anything more valuable in life than the word of God, which is inseparable from God himself. But what we know now is true. It is, it is clear so that we might be, could be saved. It is sufficient so that everything that we need for a life of godliness is contained in it. 
all these things have been revealed to us. They, it is a wonderful, good thing. But at this stage of redemptive history, it is partial. It's partial because the perfect is going to come. And what Paul means by the perfect, I'm convinced, is the return of Jesus Christ. When he will make everything perfect, he'll make a perfect people. He'll make a perfect place for those people to live in. It will be a perfect a perfect place of perfect people living to the glory of God. Now, some of you may be surprised, and this is kind of an aside again. I'm not talking there about the, the perfection of the canon, uh, the canon of Scripture. Uh, I don't think that's accurate. It doesn't really, it's not a determining factor in some of the disputes that have to do with that. Uh, that's, that is also the, the view shared by Cal, people like Calvin and Edwards, who both believed in the cessation of certain miraculous gifts. And so most of us don't care. Some of you are just wondering why I said Calvin and Edwards and not Calvin and Hobbes. You know, now I'm just bringing curious minds back to the main point. Okay, so, and the point is this. We have these things that are partial now that are so valuable, that are so wonderful, but they come to an end. Prophecies are going to end. Tongues are going to end. Knowledge is going to pass away. Right now, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. What we know, we know truly. But we do not know perfectly. Now then, we're going to have to start talking in analogies, and that's what Paul gives. When we talk about the difference between the way that we're living now and what it's going to be like when perfection comes, we have to talk in analogies. John says, First John 3, we do not know what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. So Paul talks about in analogies, and he says there, uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. Now, there he's not trying to teach uh, young men how to grow up and act like men. Uh, he assumes that, that a, a child is going to grow up to a man, and that man thinks differently than a child. You know, I, I, when I was 25, I looked back on my 15-year-old self, and I thought, man, what a foolish kid. And now I'm 35-ish, and I look back on my 25-year-old uh, self, and I think, man, what a foolish kid. Now, I'm not sure if that ever goes away. I, uh, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe it doesn't. So well, that's the kind of thing he's talking about, though. He says, hey, a man, a man doesn't think the same way as a child does. Children can know things truly. I hope, I hope that our children. I hope that our children know that we love them and that they can trust us. But they know they know in a childlike way, in a childish way. But when the perfect comes, we'll know in a mature, perfect, and complete kind of way. Right now, we are speaking. Notice, notice he, he kind of, everything is tied in to everything that's going on in Corinth. You guys are speaking. I want you to know you're speaking only partially. You know, you know only partially. You prophesy in part, but you, it's only partial. Right now, we're like children. One day, we're going to know like grown-ups. We're going to know like mature, complete, perfect men. 
Then he gives another analogy. He says, now we're looking like in a mirror dimly. Back then, the Corinth actually uh, produced some of these mirrors. They were, they were mirrors made out of metal. So flatten them out, uh, flatten them out, and, and you could see your, and shine them up, and you could see yourself in them. Uh, lots of times when I'm about to go in some place, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody else does this. If you see me do this, please don't laugh at me, okay? So you get out of the car, you shut the car door, you kind of look. I've got tinted windows because I'm cool like that. And, and I, uh, I look in the tinted windows and I kind of adjust my, adjust my hair a little bit, make sure I don't look like a, a complete buffoon before I go in some place. And that's what he's talking about. You look in, maybe look in water, a shiny piece of metal or a, or a, or a window. You see. You see truly but partially. At the moment when Jesus brings in the perfect at his return, at the end of all things, we're going to see face to face. may even be an allusion to Moses. You know, we talked about how Moses talked to God. He wasn't like, God didn't speak to Moses like a prophet did, like, like with other prophets. God gave them dreams and visions. Spoke to Moses face to face. Well, that is going to be the universal experience of all those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now then, that is, that's what's going to happen. That's how things are going to, going to be. And even more than that, he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. You know where our confidence is now? It's not in knowing everything perfectly. That is not to to excuse our growing and learning or, or to take away anybody's ambition, rightful ambition to know a lot. But that's not the source of our confidence. Our confidence is that God knows us. And there very much uh, the way that this used other places in Scripture is the idea of, of he knows us with a deep and intense and abiding love. God loves us. He knows us. He knows all the bad parts about you and he has determined because of the death of Jesus Christ to love you, to love us. And at that moment, now we love God and we have to love God. That, that is, that is, it is of the nature of being a Christian that we love God, but we only love him partially. But at least within our finite humanness, which we will still maintain, but within that, when Jesus comes, in like manner that God loves us, we're going to love him perfectly. That, in a way, is the definition of freedom. To, love, to be able to love perfectly. Like you want to love more than you do now, but you don't. But to know the freedom of, of, of expressing from yourself perfect love. That's what it's going to be like. And one of my favorite sermons, maybe go look this up online, it's called, it's an old sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. And, and just to sum it up, it's on this passage here. And he talks there about in heaven, when the perfection comes. Hey, the entire world is going to be conducive to love. The world that we live in now under the curse of sin, it doesn't help us love. Every, when, we, when we are trying to love people now, we're working against the flow of the world. The world is not about, about love, it's about lust. We're going against that. 
But when the perfect comes, everything about the world is going to move us toward love. And not only that, but all the people who will be there, they will all be lovely. They're all going to be lovable. Some people are hard to love now. Not least myself, okay? So some people are hard to love. We all have weaknesses. We all have idiosyncrasies. We all have have things that, that make it hard for people to love us and, and things about them that they're hard to love and, and love is not always returned. But in the perfect, all people will be lovely. And not only that, but, but all people will be loving. How pleasant it would be to live in a place where everybody is loving. And more than anything else, there will be there the most loving and lovely being, God himself. He will dwell with his people. A loving people in a perfect loving society under the rule of a perfectly loving God. That's the perfect. Let me close with verse 13, a short point here on the supremacy of love. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, the three super virtues, faith, believing, believing God's word, believing what you can't see, believing despite the obstacles. Hope, knowing, knowing, having, having a confidence for the future that God is going to save. And love, the, the sweet summation of every moral standard. But the greatest of these, the one to be pursued above all, the one that faith and hope produce, is love. So let us pursue love. It is the better. It is the more excellent way. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And uh, we accept humbly your correction of our sins of our wrongdoings. Please, Lord, give us hope that by your Spirit, we can become like Jesus. Give us confidence that even now, all of our wrongdoing, all of our unloving ways have been atoned for by Jesus himself. And give us hope that we who are at this present time, even cognizant of all the ways that we are not loving toward people, but give us a hope and a confidence that we can be more loving and help us to pursue it and to live that way with one another until Jesus returns and the perfect is welcomed in. Amen.